a joy to know that the Lord preserves his church, whether in Sacramento County or Placer County, and the gospel continues to go forth. And so we're very much thankful for your partnership in the gospel, and um, personally, always enjoy getting to be here to worship with you and, and uh, spend time with you. So if you haven't already, would you please open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 111? That's where we'll be spending um, the remainder of our time as we consider God's Word together. Psalm 111. And as we have God's Word open before us, just a brief prayer to ask for His help. Father, it's to you that we look this morning, and it is to you that we are entirely dependent upon. Lord, we ask by the working of your Spirit that you would incline our hearts towards you, because we know that they are prone to run in so many different directions. And with your word before us, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law that testify of your great works and your goodness towards us. Father, we ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, knowing that they are often divided. And we pray, Lord, in doing all of this, that you would satisfy us with your presence, that we would be found trusting in you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin by asking you straight away, are you a thankful person? Perhaps, more importantly, would others consider you to be a thankful person? As you think about those two questions, I'll ask you with a third. Do you have any sense of your great need to grow in your thankfulness? Really, regardless of how you answered either of those three questions, Psalm 111 has something to say to us. Whether you sense your great need to grow in thankfulness or whether you doubt you really have a reputation for being a thankful person or you just genuinely, wholeheartedly want to be one who is pursuing thankfulness. Psalm 111 goes right at the heart of each of those, those issues. But since we are essentially parachuting into this psalm right in the middle of the Psalter and not contextually moving through the Psalter with any uh, sense of continuation, it would probably be good to really get the lay of the land for this psalm before we go off in any particular direction and start making observations. From a high level, you, you may notice there, first of all, that this is what is known as one of the acrostic psalms, and meaning that this is just one of those psalms in which the first letter of each successive lines are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I mentioned that only so that we would expect that that would be really the artistic flow of this psalm. If you're not familiar with poetry or Hebrew poetry, that it it might strike you as kind of a, a, a random approach and that these thoughts are put together. But if we were hearing with Hebrew ears and reading with Hebrew eyes, we would notice that this is very much kind of the ABCs of the truth regarding God. Good for memorization. Good as Hebrew families would want to catechize their children and teach them. Just as we would say A is for apple, B is for boy, you could open up the scriptures and begin to work through the Hebrew alphabet and recount the wonderful works of God. Here's the psalmist lays out. You also will notice that this is the first of a, really a triad of psalms that begin with the same declaration. Praise the Lord. Psalm 111, 112, and 113 all begin with the same declaration, the call to worship. Praise the Lord. And each does stand really in its own particular theme, but there's great benefit in sitting down and reading all three together 
and seeing the ties that are there woven together. But really the dominant theme and the focus for our time this morning that is contained within this psalm is the works of God. As you let your eyes run back over the text, notice just some of the descriptions that the the psalmist takes up here as he begins to speak of the works of God. He calls them great, that they are those that are full of splendor and majesty. He says that they're wondrous, they're powerful. He goes on to speak of the works of God being a testimony of God's faithfulness and justice. So taking all that into account, this exaltation here in verse 1, specifically the giving thanks unto God, it flows from the consideration of the wonderful works of God. Meaning what we are to see here in the reading of this psalm and the meditation of it is that thankfulness is really a byproduct of the wonderful works of God or meditating upon God and his works. Or let me put it this way. If we are those who sense our need to grow in thankfulness and we want to overflow with thankfulness, we must not give ourselves to a mere determination to be thankful people, but to a meditation upon God and his works. Thankfulness flows downstream from considering who God is and what he has done. And so this is precisely what the psalmist does and how we will spend our time this morning. If you're helped by having a bit of a road map as to where we're going, there's really just three lines of thought that I want to follow this morning. The first four verses, we see the resolve to praise God for his works. Then in verses 5 through 9, there's the remembrance of his works. And then lastly, in verse 10, we see the response to his works. A resolve, the remembrance, and then the response. Let's begin by just looking at the psalmist's resolve to praise God for his works. Meaning, just what sort of praise does this psalmist have in mind when he calls us to praise the Lord? How does he resolve to give thanks to God? Well, notice in verse 1, he is resolved to give wholehearted praise. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. Not like the hypocrites who can mouth the treasured praise of God with their lips, but their, their hearts being far from him. Not with someone who has a, a divided heart who's attempting to simultaneously praise God and, let bow, and yet bow down to a myriad of other idols. Not with someone who has a cold heart who can barely utter a murmur of praise to God. The psalmist says, no, I am resolved to give thanks to my God with a whole heart. So what we see is that this declaration of praise, it's not just one of zeal and an emotional fury to say, let's praise God, but but one of knowledge. Because this psalmist knows something of his God, which demands not only passion, but here conviction. It's worth noting that when we encounter the true and the living God, we too become convinced that he deserves all that we have. Not just a portion of our week or a portion of our mind or just some of our outward visible signs of who we are. When we encounter the true and the living God, there is no better way to sum up what we want to give to him than this image of a whole heart. I want you to have all of who I am. And I want to praise you with a whole heart. 
The prayer of Calvin is a prayer that really ought to be upon all our lips. And he would say, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. A great way to come before our God and a petition to ask that I want to praise you and I'm resolved to praise you with a whole heart. But also in verse 1, notice that he is resolved to give public praise. The sort of praise, the sort of thanksgiving that the psalmist has in mind here takes place where? In the assembly, in the congregation. That is to say, I'm not content to just give praise by myself. I'm not content to just give praise in the mountains or out in creation. The sort of praise that I'm calling you to and that I long to give, it must be in unison with my people. The sort of praise that I must express demands that it would be offered up in the assembly of God's people. This is congregational praise, meaning I want to hear the grovelly baritone of the old man behind me and the little girl singing at the top of her lungs before me. This sort of praise demands to be sung in the company of God's people. He is resolved to give public praise, but then in verses 2 and 3, notice this resolve also includes a desire to give God-centered praise. And it's here that the psalmist really tips his hat to the theme of this entire psalm and the, the, really the thread that ties all of this together in the remaining verses. It is the works of God that have captured his heart. The theme of his praise and his resolve is to give God-centered praise because it is the works of God that have captured him. He says that it is the greatness of the works of the Lord that have drawn him in and in a sense have stirred his affections to the point that he longs to study them. It is the, the splendor, he said, it is the, the majesty of God's work that really have served to cultivate these shouts of praise. He did not just wake up one morning with this magical thought of saying, let's praise the Lord. This call to worship is the fruit of having considered the works of God. So what we can say then, this, this is most certainly not a song that begins with man and his feelings, but God and his works. Do you know the difference? This is a man who has spent time studying, meditating, considering Yahweh and his wonderful works, and he is resolved to praise this God as a result. So what do we have here? Step back for a moment and just survey the scene. We have a psalm that is calling us to give wholehearted, congregationally celebrated, God-centered praise. Now, I would just pause and wager a bet that that is the goal of what we are doing here this morning, and most likely, the desire of the majority of the people in this room. Why we are here. To give wholehearted, congregationally celebrated, God-centered praise. But if you are like me, you also know that the ideal is oftentimes a far cry from the reality. That may be what we desire, and it may be even what we know we ought to be doing, but very often that's not the reality of what we find within our own church or our own soul. 
And so when we see this great gap between God's ideal, his commands, and our reality, what do we do? The psalmist gives some help here. How do we cultivate such praise? What drives this resolve within this man? Well, that's where we turn to the next section, and we see not simply the resolve to praise God for his works, but the remembrance of his works. What we have in verses 4 through 9 is really a recounting of the various works of God, but they're set off by this great statement that says, God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Now, in our own lives, some works are rather forgetful. If I asked you, hey, where'd you go to vacation in 2008? You might have thought in the summer of 2008 that was the most epic vacation you ever took, but on the spot, you might struggle to remember, yeah, I just don't know. Who won the World Series in 1988? You may or may not know that, and I'll judge you afterwards for that. <laughs> Some works, we think in the moment, they seem monumental, and you'll remember this forever. But give it enough time, a year, five years, ten years, and we forget those works. We forget those moments, but not so the works of God. God works in such a way that he causes his wondrous works to be remembered because they are such strokes of grace and of mercy that the observer is, is struck by them and they are constantly reminded of them. Consider God and his wondrous works. God has caused them to be remembered. And more specifically, what the psalmist does here is he turns his attention to God's work amongst his own people as they're brought out of Egypt, as they are provided for in the wilderness, as God gives them his law, and as he brings them into their inheritance, into the promised land. That's essentially the theme that is upon the psalmist's mind. He says, God has caused his wondrous works to remember. So let me just pause to ask you, do you take time to make a practice calling to mind the wonderful works of God. Just as a, a part of your meditation and prayer, as the time as you seek to cultivate spiritual disciplines, is there any moment that is woven in there to simply meditate upon the wonderful works of God? Just to be still, to turn them over in your own mind, to think upon what has God done? It may be that if we're going to cultivate this sense of wholehearted thanksgiving, then we want our hearts to overflow with these themes of what God has done, then we are those who need to take up this practice of, of remembrance and to set before our minds and hearts the works of God and to consider them. It could just be the structure of your prayers that we give him thanks by simply recounting and calling to mind, what has God done? It could be thematically that you spend time in the scriptures over a period of weeks or months just reading through the accounts of the works of God and considering his greatness. But that we take time to remember what God has done. And so here the psalmist, he really just gives us some direction in that matter. If you want to grow in thankfulness, if you want to cultivate wholehearted praise, he says, let's remember who God is because God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. So what is the first work that he puts before us? We'll look at verse 5. He says that we're to remember his provision. 
thematically, it would seem that the sort of food that the psalmist has in mind here is the provision of God for the people of God in their wilderness journey. Wandering through a desert land, finding no home to dwell in, God provided bread for his people from heaven every single day of their journey. And as a faithful father, he greeted his children each morning with this faithful supply. Think just for a moment on on the provision of God. His people were enriched not as a, a result of their own toil or labor or faithfulness, but of his mercy each morning. God's unrelenting desire to provide for his people. And the following clause of this verse here, verse 5, the psalmist gives us the reason why God would do this. Yes, his mercy. Yes, because he's a faithful father. But specifically what the, the psalmist has in mind is God's unrelenting desire to uphold his covenant. God made a promise. He did not forget his promises that he made to his people. The very testimony of the opening story in the book of Exodus reminds us of this. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, Moses writes, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God remembered his promise that he made to his people. He made a promise to Abraham. He reminded that promise to Abraham's sons. He continued to fulfill that promise all the way even into Egypt. And even as they were brought out of Egypt into the wilderness with no food, God remembered his promise. Now, this old covenant example is carried over and unfolds even greater as we come to the new covenant. Because Christ himself, he he teaches us to pray, reminding us that God is our father and we're his dear children. And therefore, we are to pray with great confidence. Give us this day our daily bread. Brothers and sisters, think back upon your life. Remember the wonderful works of God in his provision of bread. Even as we were instructed and led in prayer this morning, consider the wonderful provision of God in your own life. Has he ever failed you? Has he ever withheld good from you? Has he not shown himself each day to be a faithful provider? Now, certainly there are moments that you can look back where you doubted that goodness. You thought, surely this is the moment he's not going to provide. But even then, give it enough time and you see, no, he was faithful even there. Even when I could not see. Christ himself teaches us to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Why are we talking about birds and flowers, Jesus? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Christ reasoning from the lesser to the greater, reminding us, those birds, those flowers, they testify to the faithfulness of your Father. If he feeds them, how much more so will he not provide for you? So church, we give him thanks, and we find our hearts filled with thanksgiving and praise when we remember, first of all, his provision. The psalmist then directs us in verse 6, we ought to also remember his power. Remember his provision, but remember his power. How good it is for our souls to simply meditate upon the power of God. And the specific example that the psalmist gives here that he calls to mind is God's powerful working to give his people an inheritance among the nations. There in verse 6. Think about that for a second. Just consider the power of God, the wonderful displays of God's power that God wrought to bring his people out of Egypt and into the promised land to give them that inheritance. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. As familiar as that might be to you, as familiar as that account might be, what a demonstration of power to cause those waters to retreat, causing the seabed to become dry land and God's people to walk through that sea out of Egypt and into what would become their inheritance. Think of that as you walked through there and you followed your family and the family that you came out with and you saw those massive walls of water, you could testify and say, Yahweh did this for us to get from here to there. Look at the power that is on display here. Or think also of the Jordan River. Eventually the people of God come to the Jordan River as they are then going to finally cross over into the promised land. And what does the the narrator tell us in the book of, of Joshua? The time of year in which God commanded them to cross over was the harvest season. Where the waters were at their fullest, they were overflowing their banks. And if you've grown up in the foothills in Placer, Nevada County, you know how dangerous rivers can be. Growing up in Nevada County, you would without fail, tragically, every year hear about some death of somebody who thought the Yuba River was a nice, peaceful place to play, and yet they are now dead. Now imagine being among the throng of God's people, walking up to the Jordan River as it's overflowing its banks, flowing at the highest point throughout the year, and God says, cross over. And yet what does... God do. The moment the priests dip their toe into that river, God causes the water to wall up upstream. And again, in a massive display of God's power, God's people cross that river into the land that he promised. Really, the entire conquest of Canaan and the inheritance that are given to these people becomes the testimony of the power of God. There were these other kings that they would be confronted with and have to go into battle against. There would be this king Sihon of Heshbon and Og of Bashan. They would come out to the people of God in battle, and yet the testimony is that God struck them down. And what I find interesting is that these acts of God that went before the people of God really became these displays of the power of God 
and they literally became the testimony to the nations. Do you remember Rahab's words as she hid the spies on her roof? In Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, she says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings, the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The works of God displayed in the power of God, testifying of his worth. Brothers and sisters, remember the power of God and his works. Let me just ask you, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Consider the power of his might and then lay them alongside the plight of your circumstances and compare and contrast. Is the hand of the Lord been shortened that he cannot save? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord when you consider the power of his works and whatever it may be in front of us? We find our hearts overflowing with thanks and our mouths filled with praise when we remember the power of his works. The psalmist continues in verse 7 and 8. We are to remember, thirdly, his precepts. We're to remember his precepts. He mentions here all of his precepts, the works of his hands. Not only did God give his people an inheritance, but he also gave them his word. The works of God include the giving of his own word, his precepts. Now, if we read this within the context of the other examples, it would seem that this is an alluding to that moment in which Moses met God on the mountain and God gave him the law, the ten words. And through the prophet Moses further revealed God's faithfulness and his justice and his trustworthiness through the giving of his word. And because God's word is the expression of who he is, then we can expect that his word is just another testimony of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness and his justice. And so how good and how necessary it is for us to think upon God and the giving of his word to us. Think upon the wonderful treasure that is God's word. How Psalm 19 reminds us of all that God's word is good for and what it does. But then that, that portion that says that it's, it's more to be desired than gold and sweeter than, than honey itself. I've often been convicted of that and knowing how much in my own heart I find my thoughts wandering saying if we just had this much more then we could do this. And I, I, would, I would long to have this and to be convicted of saying how much I long for this and yet God's word is better than all the gold of the earth that I could ever have. The best meal that I could ever sit down at, the sweetness of honey, it's sweeter than that. And the testimony of God giving us his word. But think also of how God's word is unlike any other human speech. 
Because we are convinced, because God's word tells us that all scripture is, is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But think about how God's word is always effectual. Meditate upon that. Parents, how many times do you give instruction that goes nowhere? That you give commands that seem to fall flat? Do you express your desire for the day and what we're going to do? And it doesn't turn out like that. Not so the word of God. Think upon how unlike God's word is to our own speech. Because we are convinced, Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the thing that I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing that I sent it. God's word is so unlike our word. God's speech so unlike our speech. Friends, when we read the scriptures or when we hear them read by someone else, we are experiencing afresh the wonderful works of God. God has spoken. He has spoken into our humanity. And he has spoken in such a way that we can perceive and hear and be transformed. And let me just say, if you are here and you are hearing the word of God or reading it in your own native tongue, which I'm willing to bet is most all of us, that you are a minority in this world. Of the 7,000 languages, did you know that there are only about 700 that have a complete copy of the scriptures in their own language? And how many copies do we have? We are awash in the wonderful works of God in him giving to us his word and that we live in a culture, in a place where we can say, the language that I speak, the language that I dream in is the language in which I hear God's word preached and which I read it on my own. Yet another just facet of the, the wonderful works of God and what he's given to us. But as we consider God and his works and how he's caused them to be remembered in verse 9, the psalmist tells us we must, we must remember his plan of redemption. He sent redemption to his people. Again, thematically here, we are to look back to the first exodus where we're reminded of God's redemption of his people from the bondage of slavery out of Egypt. The story of redemption is essentially, if you wanted to summarize it, salvation through judgment. Salvation brought about through judgment. Why would I say that? Well, because there in that exodus, the blood of the innocent lamb was provided, covering from God's wrath and protecting God's people to be brought out in the midst of judgment. God sent redemption to his people they are the rescued ones. He is the rescuer. There was not one house in which there was not someone who was dead that night, either the innocent lamb or the firstborn son. God's people were brought out. They were saved in the midst of judgment, through judgment. God sent redemption to his people. So when you hear of that story or you read it yourself, what you discover is that it is not the story of, of man ascending somehow to this place of self-betterment through 
moral improvement or through education or through just having greater compassion upon other people. This is a story of God stepping into the context of slavery and evil and hopelessness and purchasing for himself a people for his own possession that he would place his name upon and say, you're mine. I've redeemed you and I've sent redemption to you. Now, as we say all of that, hopefully you're already in your own mind being propelled forward to the greater exodus. The exodus where Christ himself would come. The covenant of redemption. The triune God determined to redeem a people for himself. And the Father sends this redemption to his people by giving them his own son to become the purchase price for their redemption. His life, his blood for the sin of his people to purchase them out of slavery unto himself. It's rehearsed in the song of Zechariah there in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of the servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Yes, we are to remember the wonderful works of God displayed in the redemption of his people. I would exhort you to do this often. Think of the mercy and the grace of the Father to set his love upon a chosen people and redeem them for himself. Think often upon the person of Christ, the only one who breaks the power of canceled sin, the only one who sets the prisoner free, the only one who you could ever say that his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Think often upon the ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one effectually applying all that Christ purchased to the credit of his people, working in us the benefits and all the assurance of being united to Christ, the ministry of the Spirit amongst God's people. And friend, if, if you are wrestling this morning with your own sense of guilt or even struggling to find some sort of hope in, in the midst of this life, this is the very announcement of Scripture. The hope for this world and the cure for a guilty conscience is found in the promise of the gospel right here. That the promise that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is the sufficient payment for our sin and the sure ground of our assurance before this God. This is why we look to Christ. This is why we turn from sin and we turn to Christ. And we say, you are the one in whom I trust because you are my redemption. You are my purchase price. And that's why we would plead with you this morning, if you have not, to turn to Christ and to look to him, laying your sin upon him, receiving his righteousness. This is the redemption that God has sent for you. And it is within all of that that we remind ourselves of the wonderful works of God. But the psalmist does not end there. There is one more verse, isn't there? In verse 10, we see the response to his works. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. So after laying out the remembrance of his works, the response of the psalmist is to take up this often repeated refrain of scripture and to declare the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The very center point, the very ground zero, the very source and foundation of all wisdom is the fear of God. For when we give ourselves sufficiently to meditate upon the wonderful works of God, do you know what happens? Our vision is clear. Our affections are then rightly ordered. Our will is galvanized to say this one refrain. I fear God. That is the result of considering who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are those who say we fear God and not men because what can man do to me? My God has displayed his power in his works and there is no one that can stand against him. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The counsel of the Lord is forever. It stands throughout all generations. We fear God, not circumstances. Have you not seen the power of his work in ruling over the waves, over kings, over sickness, disease, and death itself? Our God is a heavenly father, and he, he delights to provide for his children. Therefore, we are those who say, I don't fear the unknown of tomorrow or even my inability to provide for myself next week. The wisdom that comes from the fear of God. We are those who say we fear God and not self. By that I mean we are those who know that our emotions, they come and go, our moods, they rise and fall just like the tides. Our opinions, they're often flawed. Our perspectives are, are often limited, short-sighted, and we are so often unable to see the grand horizon of God's working. But we fear God. We are those who fear God and not self, trusting in his word and his working, not our limited perspective. Yes, brothers and sisters, a diligent consideration of God and his works not only fuels our praise, it convinces us of the wonderful goodness of being those who fear God and the great place that that brings us into. You see, worshipers of God are not detached from this world with, with our head in the clouds. We are those who are actually are, are firmly grounded, walking in wisdom, trusting in Yahweh each season of our lives. In fact, I would say the only way to walk wisely in a world that has absolutely gone mad is to fear God. A Christian is someone who knows something of God, and because of God's great work of grace, they rightly then see themselves as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles, as the beloved people of God. Someone who is now enabled to walk according to the wisdom of God. And so this last stanza of the psalm sums all of this up perfectly. His praise endures forever. 
His praise endures forever. It began with praise the Lord. And it ends with his praise endures forever. How greatly we need to attach ourselves to that which will endure forever. Do you realize that we live in a world that is surrounded by the temporal? Our health, our homes, our jobs, our possessions, our news cycle, it all testifies to the passing nature of this world and how temporary it is. But there is one who will endure forever, and his name is Yahweh. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is not subject to the, the sifting sands of culture or time or man's opinions. He is the sovereign king. He is the ruler over all nations. And because he endures forever, his praise will endure forever because he himself is eternal and of endless worth and treasure. Therefore, when we gather together like this on the Lord's Day, we are intentionally laying down that which will pass away, and what we're doing is we're taking up our eternal vocation, the praise of God. We are one day closer to this, this great eternity where we will be gathered together with the full congregation, the full assembly of God's people for all time, the upright from every generation, and dwelling together in our resurrected bodies, what will we be doing? We will continue to revel in the wonderful works of God. And what the psalmist says is that this praise will never diminish. Think about that. There will never come a moment where we come to the last verse with nothing more to sing. There will never come a moment where suddenly conversation stops and we stare blankly at one another with nothing else to speak of how great our God is because his praise will endure forever. This is the God that we worship and the goodness and the greatness of his works is what fills not just the lips but the hearts of God's people who seek him. So may God continue to press upon us the immensity of his worth May he continue to cause us to be a people that are resolved as the psalmist to give him the praise that he is due. Would you pray with me that God would work in us to that end? God and our Father, we, you, you are great and greatly to be praised. And Lord, we lament this morning as we think honestly and realistically how often our hearts are cold, our voices are silent when it comes to praise you, but Lord, how thankful we are that you've given us your word. Your word that not only testifies to us of your great works, but that, Lord, you are the one who's able to transform hearts. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to grow us in our thanks and our praise of you. We ask that you would cause the wonder of your grace and your mercy that you show upon sinners to grow each day. And we ask that you would cause the depth of our thanks to be deepened and our affections for you to be raised as high as they possibly could. And Lord, we do, even as we just thought about it, we do long for that day when we will stand before you in resurrected bodies, unhindered by our sinful nature and, and all of its effects. But Lord, until that day, continue to sanctify us that we might be a people who speak often and who speak gladly of your great worth. We do pray that you would shape our very 
desires and even the core of our ambitions by your worth. And we pray all of this in the great name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.